welcome to episode 423 of Inside Education, the podcast for educators who are interested in teaching, with me, Sean Delaney. I'm a primary teacher and teacher educator, and my book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, which was published by Routledge, is available as an ebook, as an audiobook, or in hard copy. You can email me by writing to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. On Twitter, I use the handle at InsideEd. This week on Inside Education, I speak to Professor David T. Hansen from Teachers College, Columbia University in New York. David Hansen is the director of the program in philosophy and education at Teachers College, and his books include Ethical Visions of Education, Philosophies in Practice, and his latest, Reimagining the Call to Teach. Professor Hansen's scholarship is focused on the philosophy and practice of teaching and of teacher education on moral and ethical dimensions of education, on the nature of values and inquiry, and related themes. You'll really like this podcast if you want to gain insights into the philosophy of education and the humanity of teaching. You will find different ways to think about teaching and about how to select future teachers if you're involved in teacher recruitment. David blends theory and practice and offers insights into how veteran teachers can rekindle their interest in teaching. And he shows how misplaced accountability for teaching can demoralise teachers and damage schools. In short, David Hansen helps us find and reflect on why questions in teaching. When I met up with Professor David Hansen, I noted that he had written that teaching can be seen as a craft, a political activity or a moral endeavour. I then asked him what it means to see teaching in those ways and how he sees teaching. I think to see teaching as a craft, Sean, would be to think of it as an art. And that's a very familiar image of teaching, and teachers have had that image for generations now. But I think, I think art is a bit fuller a word than craft. Art includes craft, but it also includes the person's vision, their perspective, their sensibility, um, their responsiveness to people and the world. So I do think of teaching myself, actually, as an art in that sort of larger sense. And the craft element is clearly very central. You know, the, the, te- the technology of teaching, the actual activities with children, with youth, the, the way the teacher works with the classroom and materials. So it's sort of art, craft. Um, if we had a word that dissolved both into one, then we'd, uh, we, we'd have it, I think, as I see it. And then the second part of your question, uh, you know, a sort of political activity, I, I don't myself think of teaching as itself a political activity, but I do think it has political ramifications. And I think in very, again, I think familiar ways, especially to teachers, that, you know, the forms of relationship that a teacher can build in a classroom, ideally based on respect, mutual regard, listening, consideration. If you think of a child and a youth going through school for 12 years or so, if they had a a range of teachers who really believe in those human values and relationships, the odds are that person's gonna come out of school um, familiar with how to approach other people in a civil, humane manner. And that's of course central to any inhabitable politics any livable political system necessitates that the citizens by their own, in their own disposition, can come to each other in a, in a respectful way. So, so I, don't think, I don't think of teaching as a direct political activity itself. 
In fact, I would find that somewhat contradictory and very tension-laden, but certainly, definitely the everyday work that a teacher has can, can have those longer-term effects. And then the third part of your question, uh, you know, a lovely broad question is, you know, teaching as a, as a moral endeavor. Now, the, the concept moral is certainly controversial and has received, you know, a thousand and one definitions. Uh, just in our lifetime alone, never mind the course of history. Um, I, I think of it as a very on-the-ground notion. Um, um, just, you know, the moral dimensions of teaching have something to do with how the teacher is going to influence the person of the student. Influence the person of the student, the human being that they are. And much of this, again, is indirect on the part of the teacher. They, they don't go in there trying to you know, rearrange the internal wiring of a child or youth, but just the ways that they work with them can have a very rich moral aura around it or a rich kind of moral ethos. And again, I sort of come back to those civil dispositions, things like respect, consideration, and care. So for me, the word moral is not a big hoity-toity concept. It's a very old word that reminds us of a fact that teachers can have an influence, substantive influence on children and youth. Um, so that's sort of what I mean by the moral, yeah. And the moral one, I think, is, is an interesting one because different teachers over a child's lifetime may have different moral values. So is it the cumulative effect of the multiple teachers' moral influence? Is that what leaves the most lasting mark, do you think, on, on the formation, if you like, of, of, of young people? I, I do, Sean. I do. I think, um, you know, direct lessons about morality and about values and about, you know, the virtues, direct lessons can be helpful and useful, but those are episodic. Those are occasional. Uh, you, you can't spend all day talking about patience <laughs> or respect. You've got to talk about mathematics and history and art and the subjects. Um, but, you know, schools do feature in both, I'm sure, in Ireland and here, um, you know, discrete lessons about ethics and, and values. And again, they can be helpful, but those are lessons about morality. Those are lessons about values and about ethics. They are not the enactment of values, the enactment of ethical principles, the enactment of moral dimensions or, or moral values. The enactment is, in principle, continuous. You know, with a, in a classroom of a teacher who's thoughtful about his or her work, dedicated to it, doing their best, really caring and respecting for the students as human beings, that's a daily, daily ethos and students and teacher alike are kind of swimming in that ethos, especially the teacher who has a group of children for like nine months or, you know, for the whole continuous year, that's a substantial amount of time. And again, if you, you know, if we picture a school that ideally would have a, a range of very thoughtful teachers, then imagine the child going from year to year. That's where I think we become very much, uh, the, the sorts of people that we become, not exclusively, obviously, 
we all know that the family and the home and the community can have a very large impact on a child's personhood and character and how they how they comport themselves in the world. But but still, there's something very special about the school. Um, the, the adult is with those children for hours on end each day. That's a very, very special environment. You wrote one long article where you went in depth into the use of hand raising and turn taking as one of significance in the classroom. I wonder, could you say a little bit about how that can yield insights about the moral aspect of public school teaching? That was an article that was really a treat to compose. Um, it came out of a, a three-year-long endeavor where I spent um, uh, you know, countless hours, over 400 hours, visiting a small group of, of teachers, um, several who worked in the public sector, several in what we call the private sector, and then several at a Catholic school um, for boys. And um, I noticed with all of the teachers, there were nine of them, that they had these very interesting sort of, I don't want to say protocols, but they were kind of formalized ways of, you know, managing the voices in the classroom so that not everyone's speaking at once. So they had these kind of turn-taking mechanisms, each their very own style. There was no blueprint or formula that they were following. Um, but I did know, I, I began to notice that over the course of those three years. At first, I didn't see it. I didn't see it at all. It was only as I really got familiar with the ethos of their teaching that I could, I could begin to say, how do they fashion this ethos? Well, they do it, Sean, I think, through craft. Uh, like our first, our first two comments, the first question. They do it through craft-like mechanisms for turn-taking. And I noticed that the youth they were working with over time really understood the principle of not interrupting somebody else understood that when they had the floor, great, share your thought, share your voice, share your interpretation of whatever's on the table, but you know, give others that very same opportunity. And so the, the simple thing of turn-taking became this very complex drama of learning, again, to use our familiar terms, of learning how to respect others, of learning in a nutshell, the incredible art of being in a dialogue. A dialogue that is not simply a series of monologues, you know, one person speaking and then retiring back to the, into the shadows, but a, a true dialogue, a true human exchange of thoughts and, and, and ideas and, and reasons and so on. I saw how the turn-taking mechanism, this sort of, you know, simplistic sounding craft can really have a, a large play, a large place in the, the dynamics of dialogue. Of learning how to do that. And did you observe those teachers in action with, with those procedures in place? I did, Sean. This is a, a wonderful experience at the beginning of my career, at the end of my doctoral program, and the beginning of my career as a professor, spending these three years in those classrooms. And it was a great privilege, um, not only to be with one teacher over three years, but to see them in you know, different, cl different classes as those classes evolved over time as, as teacher and student, you know, worked together and became familiar together. It's fascinating work to see the emergence of the culture of a classroom, if you will. Can you say some more about that? Yeah, that, that's a, again, a familiar term, the, the culture of a classroom. And 
I must say, in my experience, every classroom I've ever been in has a very distinctive culture. Um, it, it definitely comes down to the, the, um, the persons themselves, their personalities and styles. Also has to do with the subject matter at hand. Um, every subject has its own formal, formal structure. Every, every subject allows for certain kinds of exchanges and less so for others. Um, just a whole set of, of dynamics go into a classroom culture. And maybe I could, you know, I could offer kind of a summative comment, Sean, of what I, I learned. I, and I, I ended up writing about this years after the fact, but I saw in those classrooms that um, teachers and students, these teachers and their students were coming closer and closer apart and farther and farther together. And that's a, a non, that doesn't sound right. Closer and closer apart sounds like a contradiction. But what I realized is that um, the more time they spent together over the course of a semester or a school year, then the more the teacher and the students were learning about, it, learning about each other, really understanding what made each of them tick as a person and their interests, their foibles, their strengths, their limitations, their imagination. So in a sense, they were coming closer and closer apart, seeing the singularity of each of them rather than a, homo, you know, a homogeneous mass. It's kind of a, a paradox, but closer and closer apart. And yet at the same time, farther and farther together as they went, you know, pushed deeper into a particular subject and learned more and more how to do that indeed together rather than just you know, kind of solo operating individuals. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think it, it it certainly gives 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 us food to to for thought. If you go back to the three ways you talked about it again at the start, the art, the political activity, and the moral endeavor, I suppose, and maybe it's because I did my initial teacher education in the 1980s. But the one thing we were told is that teaching is a profession. Where does profession fit with your conceptions of teaching? I've had a a career-long tension with that word profession as it applies to teaching. And, um, and I say tension because I see, um, you know, great significance and importance in thinking of teaching as a profession. Um, all the hallmarks that we associate with the profession, you know, intellectual responsibility and preparation, and kind of a code of ethics, um, all of the above. But, you know, historically professions like medicine, law, and, and so forth, they, get, they tend to get very bound up in prestige and um, political um, struggles for um, you know, greater resources and, and um, competition with other professions in, in society and culture. So the word profession often takes us up to a kind of macro perspective very large macro issues. And again, those are all important. Clearly, teachers need organization and they need you know, um, ways of defending their, their, their rights and their position, their, their, um, their autonomy. All of that is very true, but on the ground of the classroom, which is where teachers live their lives, it's vocation or calling or words like practice or words, Sean, like craft, 
those are the words at play. Those are the concepts at play. And especially, I think, um, this idea of a call to teach or teaching as a calling, which um, I first took inspiration for that idea from witnessing the teachers I mentioned earlier, as well as other teachers. I think that comes a bit closer to home for teachers, the idea of a calling, of, of being summoned, to use the poetic term, of being summoned to be with children or with youth and or summoned by a, you know, summoned or called by a subject that they love. You know, inspired and called to come into this thing called education. It's a much more personal term, calling, than profession. Much more personal. And each teacher gives a very singular mark to, to their relationship with teaching. So that would be a beginning of beginning of a response, yeah. And I suppose some people might say then that you know, that if that is the case, then teachers and the teaching profession will never be as respected maybe as they might be in society. Because if it's a calling, there's almost kind of a religious or a voluntary nature to it that you should almost be doing it for the sake of the the, the work itself. And that that could actually undermine the attractiveness of of a profession for people who have to have to put bread on the table. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a very important point. And that's part of the tension that I mentioned a moment ago with profession calling. Um, because, you know, as, as I mentioned a second ago, I, I totally agree that um, uh, teachers need a, a kind of organizational platform that gets recognized by society, that they are uh, human beings with a particular kind of knowledge. Um, a particular set of capabilities, you know, and as we mentioned, a, a certain kind of preparation and commitment um, that is singular, that marks them off as a unique kind of uh, occupation profession in society, just like law is, just like doctoring is, and nursing, and and so forth. It's it's very indispensable. Uh, I, I agree. And in the United States right now, um, there's been great tensions between teachers' unions and politicians. Uh, it's a lot of tension, but the unions have been very important for protecting teachers' autonomy, as well as putting bread on the table <laughs> and making sure their salaries are increasing each year and, and that kind of thing. Um, so it, it is a great tension, and, and you're pointing to something right as well, because um, across history, um, people who have had a sense of service to others have been taken advantage of, uh, especially, Sean, if we think of te- teaching as, as largely women's work until, you know, sometime after World War II, where, you know, eventually women began to have access to many professions, but certainly before the Second World War, teaching was one of the few uh, professional activities that, te- te- that women had access to. So it, you know, very much associated with women's work And because of the reality of of patriarchy, um, which we haven't been able to shake entirely in our our Western societies, there was an under-recognition, a lack of recognition, as well as a lack of compensation, the practical practical necessities of life. And that that still is a bit of a legacy today. And um, so these these are real things. For some reason, I'm remembering all of a sudden Florence Nightingale 
when she wrote about nurses, you know, in the 19th century, she said, don't, take, don't be taken advantage of. Don't be taken advantage of. You have a vocation, but you're making a serious public service. And we must, you know, demand our, our compensation from the state for this work. So it's a tension because at the same time, teaching just is this remarkable, ethical, aesthetic, intellectual practice. It just is a calling to many of the persons who come into it, even shown if they don't use that word. And of course, the word itself is not important. It's the spirit. And I think that just is the case for many teachers. So how do we, how do we honor that? Which I believe is a tremendous attraction to people to come into the work. Because many, you know, many young people really do feel a, a yearning for a meaningful life, even if it's very raw and coet and unpolished. Uh, somehow we need to hold that with also the, the, the importance of, of you know, defending the profession. So some of us can accent one and some of us can accent the other. And fortunately, there are many colleagues in our universe who are doing the one side. I guess I'm more on the other side. And you first wrote about this back in the 1990s, I think, the, your original book called The Call to Teach. And your latest book is called Reimagining the Call to Teach. And it's a, it's a reworking of that earlier book. Why was it necessary to rework your original Call to Teach? I think two, two reasons. Um, one is simply that um, so much has changed in the field of education since I composed that earlier book in the mid-1990s. So much has changed and transformed, both positive and negative, you might say. In a sort of negative sense, the, the tremendous top-down, what we call in, in the States, accountability movement, where uh, so much pressure is now on standardized testing and even test scores being used to assess teachers. Um, it's, a, it's a very difficult um, pernicious climate right now. I have to use that strong word. It's very, very, it's a very narrow and shallow version of accountability. Um, I fully agree, and every, every dedicated teacher I've ever met agrees that teachers need to give an account of what they're doing. They need to give an accounting. They're paid by the public purse and they have a public responsibility. They should give an accounting. But the current system in the United States, at any rate, provides very little opportunity for them to do that much less to have their own accounts taken seriously in the formation of policy. So it's a very top-down, very difficult environment for our teachers in, in this country. It has been now for going on 15, 20 years indeed. We've lost a lot of good people um, over these years and it's an ongoing struggle in teacher education to help new candidates realize you can do sincere and really good work in the classroom but you need to have strategies, you know, good strategies for also dealing with the top-down uh, requirements. So one thing that's changed a lot from the mid-1990s is that ethos of accountability, the way teachers are assessed. So I felt a need, Sean, to come back to this idea of a call to teach and in effect ask myself, is it still possible to have a calling under those conditions, under those difficult conditions that have been uh, sort of imposed on teachers. My answer uh, in the book is yes. And again, it also is yes because of the teachers who I worked with recently. And that uh, there's a big project I do with teachers that informs that book. So that's sort of one 
you know, one way to respond to why, why a new book on the call to teach. Um, the other brief thing I could say in response to your question is I'm happy, joyfully happy that I think, I think I've learned a lot more about teaching since the mid 1990s. I think I really have learned a lot more about it, what it is, what it is to be a teacher, um, how to think about the practice and the like. So, so I felt this, no pun intended, summons to return to the, to the theme. <laughs> and when you say that part of, the, of what has undermined teaching is the, is the way teachers are assessed, what, what is it about that? Can you say a little bit more about that? Because I don't think it has happened to the same extent here in Ireland. And maybe we could learn from, from what, what has happened in the, in the United States. Yeah, I think, I think briefly, um, there's federal legislation, several rounds of, of federal legislation, uh, mandating the timing and the, and the substance and the impact of standardized testing. It's become a bit less onerous, a bit less like a straitjacket than it was some years ago. But there was a, lo- there was a, a, a run of years, um, 10 years plus, where it was really having a terribly distorting effect uh, on, the, on, the, on the operations of a, of a typical school um, and the operations of typical classrooms because of these, the way that schools were compared across you know, what, were, what were their test scores and what resources would they get depending on their test scores and how were they ranked publicly as good, bad, and everything in between. A lot of public shaming, Sean, went along with this process. It's very cruel, very thoughtless. Um, shaming of schools or shaming of teachers? Both, Sean, both. The, the, the links would be made between the scores in a school and then in different subjects. And teachers of those subjects would actually be named in different kinds of social media. Look at, look at Mrs. X, whose students scored so poorly. What is she doing in the school? Um, so a lot of public shaming was part of the zeitgeist. Really difficult years these, these have been. Um, and was that linked yeah. to No Child Left Behind, or was it later? Than Correct. That? Correct. Yeah, that's the beginning, John. Yeah, the No Child Left Behind legislation. And those legislation... You know, it has, it has good aims behind it, especially trying to, to um, provide an equitable education for every child. You know, we've had um, historic racial disparities in the United States, historically much less educational provision provided to black children and uh, Hispanic children and schools. But the legislation had a good intent to try to even the playing field, so to speak. But the actual implementation was so tone deaf to what teachers and schools are all about as institutions and as practitioners, tone deaf, just formed by persons who just had no clue about the social, cultural, moral, <laughs> aesthetic dimensions of life in school and in a classroom. And, and also, I have to say, um, controversial because of the use of the resources very expensive to set up all those testing across the country. And those resources went to private companies who generated all these tests. I think part of the great debate in the country has been, what if we put all those resources into supporting each school in a distinctive way and providing much more support for each teacher and maybe some release time for each teacher to 
you know, study new techniques and new crafts, the craft dimension of their work. That money was not used for that purpose. So it's been a, been a bit of a struggle. And I, I have a range of my former students who are now faculty, different places in the States who are doing a lot of interesting work, um, both to show us how demoralizing that policy really has been on the ground, but also to show us how there are many teachers who have stayed the course and are, and are finding really creative ways to respond to, the, to that pressure. But it's very much, a, very much a shaky environment here in the States would be my reading of the scene because of the, the policy dispensations uh, in juxtaposition with you know, teachers' long-standing commitment to really wanting to do well. Um, do you think it's redeemable? Do you think things can go back that, that, that teachers can actually feel reacquire that sense of agency that seems yeah, to I, I'm, 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 I'm always hopeful and I think there's grounds for hope as well. Um, I think um, there's, there's been so much pushback, Sean, against the policy the last 20 years. There are, there are now um, movements across the United States called op, opt out where parents are simply refusing to send their children to school on test days. Absolutely refusing with the great, great um, support of the teachers <laughs> um, who do not want to teach to the test. They want to teach. And that's not teaching to standardized tests. So th th there is a lot of activity on the ground. It's the best part of the United States to me is how there's often a lot of citizen upswell from the ground. And, and it's quite active. Um, there's been a lot of teacher strikes. Um, so I think, I think the pendulum you know, has been moving. I, I like to think it will continue to move. Right now, this is an aside. We have to sort out our terrible polarized politics. Um, that's gonna be rather important to make, to make progress on anything that matters. Um, but that's something we're dealing with. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that that's something that's it's becoming a feature. I think in lots of lots of countries at the moment, you know, for for all kinds of of, of reasons. But if, if we go on, to, there's another article I really like of yours, and it's uh, I think the title of it is "A Poetics of Teaching." First of all, just to because I, I mean I hope that some listeners will actually search out this article because I, I think it's a really interesting article about teaching. But what does poetics mean? Oh yeah, it's a. Uh... It's actually a, a very ancient term. Um, I think it appears in, um, in language with Aristotle, you know, some 2,400 years ago, where poetics, um, from his point of view, he was very interested in trying to figure out why it is that drama on the stage has the kinds of effects it does on the spectators. Um, the ancient Greeks, you know, we, we know they were so absorbed with theater. It's a huge part of their culture in Athens and so on. And all the great names we know, Sophocles and Euripides and Aeschylus. So Aristotle, you know, came of age in that culture. And he was, again, really taken by what he saw in the faces of spectators and in what they would say and do afterwards, long afterwards. The state, you know, the play would stay with them. And they would keep coming back to it. So... Poetics comes into form as a word to try to think about that. The poetics of a work of art, or in this case, the poetics of a, of a, of a work of theater. 
And since that time now, it's mushroomed across the disciplines and the humanities. Uh, you, there's the poetics of just about everything you can imagine now. It's, um, but, but with, the, with this, the, the shared theme, John, of um, you know, what is the impact of this object? <laughs> um, how, does it, how does it work to create an impact? How does that work? How does a poem work to actually move a reader? or a listener. So it's a very, it's a really wonderful concept, uh, but also very challenging, as you can imagine. Um, it's one reason why people continue to use it, explore it, criticize it. I've, I've known about it for a long time, since my undergraduate days, when I actually read a lot of theater and literature. It occurred to me, though, um, as I got near the time of publishing that article, that Poetics had a nice relationship with what we talked about earlier about the moral dimensions of teaching, you know, the influence of a teacher. There's an interesting relationship with that, you know, the, the, the impact of teaching as a corollary to the impact of a theater, or the impact of a poem, the impact of a painting. What's the teacher's impact in a, in a kind of interestingly corresponding way? So it occurred to me, I, I realized no one had ever written about the poetics of teaching. And I, I thought it would be really worthwhile to try to explore that. Um, and so I did. <laughs> so if, if a teacher is sensitive to the poetics of teaching, how might their teaching appear to an observer? You know, it's quite possible they wouldn't appear at all differently. You know, a teacher who, let's say, has not really thought about everything that might go under the word poetics, has not really thought about the kind of subtle influence that they may be having, hasn't really thought about the, the, way, the way their gestures, like my hands right now, might actually convey a message. A teacher who hasn't necessarily thought about any of that might still be a really wonderful teacher, of course. And so the observer who goes into the classroom might not see any difference between that teacher and another teacher who may have given it thought. And, and yet this, the style might be very similar. You see what I'm getting at there? So it wouldn't automatically lead to seeing something different, but it certainly could, most certainly could, especially for perhaps a, a fairly new teacher, you know, in their, in their initial years who, after they've gotten through the survival stage <laughs> and can get through each day, um, you know, their second, third, fourth, fifth year, they, they can more and more kind of refine what they're doing. That's, that's when it comes into awareness, some of the subtleties of the influence they might be having. And almost, you know, Sean, you'll, you'll, you'll have seen this, all your listeners will know this, that just the way you might stand near a child, or maybe not even stand, but squat down, just the smallest physical moves can be part of a poetics of practice and can send these, these subtle messages to the child that you're, you're there, you're listening, you're present. So, um, so it can very much, it can become quite evident if we think of a teacher who's sort of struggling, but then over time begins to get more and more at home as they become aware of, of these craft dimensions, these poetic dimensions. Does that seem right to you? Does that sound right? Yeah, I mean, because you say that even that having uh, an appreciation of a poetics of teaching can 
make teaching more meaningful for the teacher. Yes, I, I do think that's true, and um, which is why I think it's certainly a wonderful thing to become mindful of it um, as a general principle. Because I do think that's the case, Sean. Again, when I think of so many teachers I've worked with and interacted with, um, when I think of my own practice over these years now, um, being aware of the microscopic level of the classroom, you know, actually catching the look on a student's face or catching the, the tone of voice in a student's remark, catching and noticing the gesture of a student towards another student, sort of becoming aware of these subtleties makes the classroom that much more, more and more an amazing place to be, just a fascinating place to be, uh, such an artful place to be, an unpredictable place to be, a surprising place to be, a mysterious place to be. And all of those words are why teaching can become such an enchanting activity. Despite all of its challenges and difficulties, it can become genuinely enchanting. Um, maybe not all day long for a given teacher. <laughs> yeah, that's. I'm, I'm trying to think of a teacher who is kind of at their wits' end because of maybe you know children who are misbehaving or who are you know that the, the there are all kinds of demands on the teacher and they're struggling and you know so. So I suppose it's, it's trying to keep both sides in play. Is that, is that what, what you're advocating? Yeah, no, that's a, I think that's a, that's a very mature comment you've made uh, because I think part of a teacher's maturity as they you know, uh, spend their time in the, in the practice is learning how to balance these things, that there are going to be times every day that it's drudgery or frustration or failure. We don't really talk about failure in teaching maybe as much as we should because it's so endemic. Um, again, I, I've not met a teacher in my life who has not failed many, many times and continues to do so despite how, however much experience they have. I know I fail in my classroom. Um, it's very sobering and frustrating, but some classes, some lessons just don't work at all. Or sometimes I have a very rocky communication with a student. And we have, it takes a while to get back on the same page with that student. And, um, and I sort of rack myself over the coals sometimes um, about those you know, human failures. But all the same, I think, um, when you think of the rhythm of teaching, which I think is a very important word, the rhythm of teaching, there are these, there are these moments of, of tremendous satisfaction even with the most minor accomplishment or seemingly minor accomplishment on the part of a child or youth or, or something. Um, those things add up to something pretty, pretty magic over time. So it's a rhythmic, it's a rhythmic practice. In, in this article as well, you write that when someone is being appointed to a teaching position, that the assessors on the interview board and, and this is a quote from you, want to know whether the candidate has a certain passion for life or to use equally dramatic terms, whether he or she loves life. What do you mean by that? The context for what I said there was my, my decade as the director of a teacher education program. This was at the University of Illinois at Chicago before I moved to my present position at Teachers College. So for a decade, Every year I was involved in interviewing 
potential candidates for our teacher education program. So I was heavily involved in that practical dimension of, of running such a program. And we'd meet with dozens and dozens of individuals every spring. It, it kind of dawned on me that, um, you know, some of these candidates, you could just see they love life. <laughs> as silly as that sounds, you could see they're, they're human beings who um, just have had inspirations, they, uh, accomplishments, um, things that they really care about, maybe arts or sports or other persons or the way they describe it. Um, you can just see that it's a real love of life at work here. To, to use poetic terms, Sean, they're grateful for life. They, they're excited about their lives. They're thrilled about the possibility of becoming teachers. They are, for people so young, so, so mature in their sense of life's prospect and possibility. You know, I learned to hear that in the voices of a, a bunch of candidates and my colleagues and I, we began to talk about that, that element. And we began to say, she is so alive. You know, her, her, her marks at university are, they're okay. You know, maybe just thinking by themselves, we wanna, we wanna think a little longer, but oh, she's so alive. We must have her in our program. You know, we just, we would find ourselves talking that and we would quickly say, well, wait a minute, are we being arbitrary? And then we would think it through and say, not at all. That's the kind of person children deserve. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you can have all kinds of criteria, but but really it's, yeah, you're saying, do, do they love life and have they a passion for life? And, and, and coming back to John, to our earlier, our earlier notes in the conversation, without some kind of love or gratitude for life, teaching is, could potentially grind you down as a person. I was even wondering, you know, say over time, and, and if somebody has been ground down a little bit, how can teachers find meaningfulness in their teaching? Do you mean particularly those who maybe have been sort of worn down or? Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose both, both really. I mean, I'm interested in meaningfulness in general, but, but yeah, I mean, particularly maybe somebody who, you know, is teaching maybe 20, 30 years and they still have another, you know, 10, 15 years in them. Uh, how can they you know, recapture that, that sense of passion that they had when they, when they started. Yeah, you know, there's, um, I, I'm sure this is the case in Ireland. I'm, I'm not familiar with, with your system there, but, but here um, various teachers and teacher educators have organized different kinds of um, programs and different kinds of experiences that are directly for teachers who are, are veterans and who want to rejuvenate themselves re-inspire themselves, refresh and renew themselves. There's a, there's a range of exemplary programs that I'm familiar with here. And um, I can mention one very briefly, Sean, it's called Descriptive Review, um, which emerged out of um, uh, the state of Vermont, some really brilliant educators there. And a long story short, it's, uh, it's an activity in which teachers will get together during the school year, let's say once a month, veteran and perhaps novice alike. And in each session, uh, one or perhaps two teachers will take turns sharing a description that they've composed of a single student, one student in one of their classes who has 
absorb them for some reason or another, maybe because they're having difficulty with the student or because they're amazed by the student or sort of anything in between. So they, they, they write this description and there are sort of guidelines for how to do it, keeping all judgment out, just a description. And they read it to their, to their peers. And it may take 30, 40 minutes to read it out loud. And then everyone in the room in turn comments on that description. And they begin to weave in practical suggestions and the like. I've witnessed a number of those myself and read about them quite a bit. They are, they are remarkable what they do for the teachers. Just teachers, young and old, young and veteran alike, they just leave just, just totally reimagining, re if I may say, use that word, reimagining their work. And that's just one example of different kinds of things that are available to, to teachers. And um, that, that would be my response there, yeah. What do you see as the most important work of teacher educators? And I'm particularly thinking here of initial teacher educators. That's a timeless question, isn't it? I say timeless because I think back all the way to Socrates and some of his interactions with younger, with adolescents. And you could see him almost preparing them to do what he's doing. <laughs> uh, goes back a long way, your question, Sean. I think in our time, maybe it's back to um, the beginning. Maybe it's back to some kind of combination of art and craft. In other words, initial preparation, it's, it's of course crucial to work on craft with uh, these, these, young, these young persons so that they can go into the school and do the work that's necessary, know how to do a lesson and an activity, know, know something about leading a discussion, know something about assessing students' work, all of the above. So it, the craft element endures and is very, it's very central. But I think more and more can be done when I think of the teacher ed programs that I'm aware of. Um, more can be done uh, on the art side of teaching, you know, teaching as an art. And here, it would be activities, Sean, and I've done some of these myself, um, especially during that decade when I was directing that program, that can help draw out from candidates a sense of their own humanity, a sense of their own humanity, who they are, what are the things in life that make them tick? What are the things in life that move them? And can we as teacher educators engage in activities that put them face to face, maybe with new things that might move them? Like some story of uh, perhaps of a, of a teacher or a student, but I'm thinking much more, perhaps a painting, perhaps a poem, perhaps a short story, perhaps a film that has such a, 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 a deeply moving human element that it takes them out of themselves. And we talk, what does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to be a human being? That's who you are. That's who you will be as a teacher. And those children you're with are young human beings. So let's want you to start thinking from the very beginning of your career of the art side, not just the craft. So I would want to somehow, Sean, find creative ways within, obviously, the constraints of time and all of that. Um, to bring those together, art and craft. And do you see philosophy of education as having a role in the formation of teachers? Yes, I do. I do very, very much. I think that um, 
you know, teaching is so saturated with why questions. You know, why teach this subject? Why do it in this way? Why have this activity? Why engage my students in this way rather than that way? Why use this tone of voice with my students? Why have this turn-taking mechanism? <laughs> you know, it's just so saturated with why questions. And that's the invitation to philosophy in a nutshell. And so I think um, uh, there's a natural sense in which I think every thoughtful teacher I've ever met is naturally philosophizing without ever needing to use that word, but they are naturally philosophizing. So why not, as we were talking earlier about um, you know, poetics, why not in initial teacher education and, and thereafter, bring that into greater awareness that you, novice teacher, are going to be philosophizing. And let's read a few philosophers to see what that's like and to, to empower you and strengthen you to realize that philosophy is one of the most natural languages of teaching and being a teacher. It's a very different conception than the academic version of philosophy at university. That, that I don't, I'm not talking about. I'm talking about philosophy as a, as a practice itself, a long-standing practice itself uh, on this earth. And, and philosophy, if I could add one more note briefly, Philosophy has these two traditional strands. One is philosophy as theory, which is now at the university platform. What is knowledge? How does it differ from belief or opinion? Those are great theoretical questions. But there's always been from the beginning, philosophy understood as an art of living or philosophy in its so-called wisdom tradition. You know, philosophia, the love of wisdom in Greek. Um, so this art of living, is very natural to think about for teachers. When they're in the presence of their students, when they're in the school, to think of them, they're leading a certain kind of life, these teachers. And philosophy, um, there's so much richness in this strand of philosophy to read and study. It's just, I've seen how uh, helpful it can be to the teachers and inspiring. Because it's philosophy on the ground and in response to life on the ground. David, we're coming near the end and I, we could go on for so much longer, but I have a few questions that I put to every guest on the programme. So I'd like to just um, put them to you and just see what you what you think of them. The first one is, what is school for or what are schools for? To bring human beings together who would otherwise never be together from as many different walks of life as possible, as many different backgrounds of life as possible, with as many different interests and experiences as possible, so that all of them, all of them together, can attain a new platform of experience that they would otherwise never have without that special institution called the school. That's what I would say there. Is there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? Oh, which one should I tell you about? <laughs> well, I did read about um, Mrs. Rudsky oh. in, in your new book, but it doesn't have to be about her. Well, but no, no. I'm, I'm, since it's in the book, she, um, I, I would definitely, uh, for your audience, I talk about my grade 10 uh, English teacher named Mrs. Rudsky, who um, just taught me so much about writing, much more than I realized at the time. She taught me about the arts of writing, and she also, and especially, taught me what poetry is. 
even though I didn't fully appreciate what I was learning from her at the time, I have since then. But I trace what I've, whatever I've learned about poetry, which I love, whatever I've learned in my life about poetry, it begins with Mrs. Rutsky. So that's the best, that's, that's probably the, the sweetest example I can think of. I'm so indebted to her. What is your vision of an educated person? Well, you have to tell me your vision if I tell you mine. Because <laughs> you, you've talked to so many people. Well, gosh. Um, I, you know, I, um, I've done some work on this concept called cosmopolitanism. And I, I won't get into that here. We don't have time. But one, one thing that came out of my work on that idea is that I think an educated person in the world today, especially given the world today, is a person who is, we might say, reflectively loyal to their own community, to their own inheritance, to their own heritage, reflectively loyal to what you might call the local, but also reflectively open to new people, new ideas, new practices, new, new possibilities, new values. And in both reflective loyalty, reflective openness, the key word is reflective. Without reflective loyalty to one's own can become dogmatic and, and, and perhaps, perhaps very harmful to other people who are different. So, but reflective loyalty is quite different than dogmatic loyalty. And then reflective openness, it means don't just take in anything that comes your way from the world. Think about it. Reflect on it with other people. But I, I, would, I guess I would put that forward, Sean, as one way of thinking of an educated, educated person today, which is, you know, a person who can do that very special thing of tolerating others, but ideally even more than tolerating others, learning to learn from them and with them. Because I can tolerate another person and learn nothing from them. But to actually position myself to learn from them, that to me is an ideal image of an educated person. Who or what inspires you? Poetry, film, the arts in general. I'm just mesmerized by what these human beings, our fellow human beings can, can create. Sort of back to the word poetics and, and the Greek word poesis, creativity. I'm just totally taken by that cosmos of human activity. And is there a particular film or poem at the moment that is occupying your mind or poet? Uh, the poet uh, Rainer Maria Rilke. Um, I'm deeply absorbed in his work. I have been for some time. His poetry, I think, is, uh, in a nutshell, is so attuned to the, to the importance of everyday life. Everyday life. It's very, it's, to me, it's very um, inspiring, very empowering. It has influenced, Sean, that book in many ways that I couldn't name, but it's kind of between the lines of that book, his sensibility. And that book is reimagining the call to teach. With That's the right. Yeah, that, that recent book. Yeah. Rilke is somewhere behind the scenes there. And the last question then, David, is have you a favorite writer, book or blog about education? I think I keep coming back to both Plato because of the dialogue forum he created, which is so vivid and human and just wonderful back and forth of human beings. And then I come back to John Dewey 
the famed American educationalist philosopher who, John, I think his vision of school and, and, of, and its relation to the possibilities of democratic life is unsurpassed still, just unsurpassed. Very special vision. I think that man put together in his lengthy, lengthy life and, and work. I keep coming back to the well. That's my well, Plato and Dewey. <laughs> and what a deep well that is to dip into for Professor David T. Hansen from Teachers College, Columbia University. You can listen back to this episode or to over 420 previous episodes by going to my website, seandelaney.com and clicking on podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please review it on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me on Twitter where I use the handle at InsideEd. Please email me with suggestions or feedback to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. My book, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, was published by Routledge and is available from all good libraries. The audio version read by me is available from Audible and other audiobook platforms. Until the next time, this is Sean Delaney saying goodbye. Thank you for listening.